All right. Well, let's get our Bibles. Let's go 1 Corinthians 13. 1 Corinthians 13. And as you're turning to 1 Corinthians 13, just want to bring up some of the things that we've already talked about in this series, just to get us all on the same page this morning. Um, If you remember, the book of 1 Corinthians was written by Paul to a very messed up church at Corinth. There were people in this church who were doing things such as committing incest, they were getting drunk at communion, Um, people in the church cursing the name of Jesus, denying the resurrection, Uh, they were gathering for worship and it was disorderly, chaotic, people in the church using their spiritual gifts not to build up the church and to serve the church, but they were using their gifts for themselves to bring attention to them and to say to everybody else, I'm better than you, right? And so Paul writes this book of 1 Corinthians to just call them out on this stuff. He calls them to repentance. Um, he, he tells them to put away this childish behavior and to grow up as believers. And in 1 Corinthians 13, he brings the book to a head in the famous love chapter that most of us know because we've heard it, you know, read at numerous weddings we've been to. But Paul, when he was writing here, he wasn't speaking directly to a husband and wife. He was speaking to the church, the church of Jesus Christ. And what he was describing here is what this church had a very deep problem with. And the problem was they didn't understand what love looked like. They didn't understand how to display it, how to show it, how to give it. They were failing in their love for God. They were failing in their love for each other. And because of that, there was no way in the world they were going to love people outside the walls of their church. And so I want us just to go back to these verses that we've read each week. 1 Corinthians 13, starting in verse 4. And I'll remind ourselves about what Paul said. Love is and isn't. So here's what he says. He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. And then you can jump down to verse 13. Paul closes out this chapter by saying, So now faith, hope, and love abide these three, but the greatest of these is love. So what we've learned over the past several weeks is this, is that when it comes to love um, that Paul is describing in 1 Corinthians 13, um, he's describing a love that's not earthly, it's not natural, right? It's a supernatural, unconditional, godly type of love. It's the same love God the Father showed us in Jesus Christ. It's a love that would look at someone else and say, I'm going to choose to love you even when you don't deserve to be loved. It's a love that would look at someone else and say, you know, I'm going to choose to just love you for no reason at all. And Paul says that agape love, it's not a love that's vengeful, retaliatory, envious of other people. It's not a love that boasts and brags and talks about how awesome we are. It's not a love that's arrogant or rude or or puts ourselves in front of other people. Paul says instead, agape love, godly love, love for no reason at all, it's patient It's kind, it's gentle toward all people, it's humble, it's contrite, and it always looks out for the interests of others before looking out for our own interests. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 13 goes on to define agape love further, and uh, here's the next thing he says about it. He says, agape love is not irritable or resentful. It's not irritable or resentful. Now, now let me tell you what those words mean so you get this, okay? That word irritable means what you see on the screen. 
It means isn't easily angered. And maybe some of your Bible translations use uh, that wording. That's about as simple as it gets. Love, agape love, it isn't easily angered. That word resentful, it's a Greek accounting term that refers to a ledger of unpaid bills. So you get this picture of somebody who's got a sheet of paper out and they're writing and keeping track of debts that someone owes them. Okay, in relationships, that would be, I'm going to remember and to file away in my brain all your mistakes, all your sins, all your shortcomings, how you've wronged me, how you've hurt me, right? This is what it means to be resentful. And if you're taking notes, go ahead and write that big idea down for today. Love is not easily angered or resentful. Now, I'll tell you, in my experience in life and ministry, I don't know that I've seen an attitude kill more relationships than those attitudes on the screen. Anger and resentment, anger and bitterness. I've seen it play out in friendships. I've even had it go down in friendships in my life, right? Where, you know, two friends, man, they start letting the past define the present. And because of that, they're so busy keeping track of each other's wrongs and mistakes and sins. Um, They bring it into today and they start getting angry with each other. And over time, it just gets bitter and, and worse. And before you know it, the friendship explodes or implodes and they have no idea how in the world to make things right again. Um, I've seen this happen in the lives of parents and teenagers over 11 years of student ministry. I had a lot of meetings with parents and kids and I'd sit across the table from him and, and here you got a student, a teenager who just looks miserable, right? Mom or dad sitting over here just pounding this kid. Let me tell you what they've done. Let me tell you how they've messed up. Let me tell you what their sins are, how they've fallen short of my standards. And they're just pounding the kid. And then the kid speaks up and says, well, let me tell you what mom and dad has done. And this is how they treated me. This is what they've done. And what you have is a parent and a kid who have been so busy keeping track of each other's records of wrong. They're resenting each other. They're angry with each other. And they're at a place they have no idea how to get out of. Um, I've seen it happen more times than I can count with marriages. I've had the opportunity to sit across the table from husbands and wives who are struggling. They're having a tough time. And you ask them what's going on. And immediately both of them start bringing up the past. Right? Here's what they've done. Here's how they've wronged me. Here's how they screwed up yesterday. Right? On the way here even. Here's what happened. And then the wife over here, she's doing the same. And husband's resenting wife and wife is resenting husband. They both got their ledger sheets out and they're just talking about how bad the other one's been and they're angry and they have no idea how to get out of that place. Anger and bitterness. Listen to me, church. Those attitudes are relationship killers. And maybe you're here this morning and you can identify with that. Like maybe there's somebody in your life right now who when you think about that person, I mean, just fury starts burning inside of you, right? I mean, you are mad just thinking about their face. I mean, that person's name is said and immediately your list is out and you're going, boom, here's how they've messed up. Here's how they've wronged me. Here's how they've hurt me. Bam, 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 bam. Maybe you struggled this morning when it comes to these attitudes of anger and resentment. Listen, I want to tell you what I'm praying for you today, okay? I'm praying today that God would set you free. That through the power of the Holy Spirit, that God would release you from those unhealthy attitudes of anger and resentment that will just eat you alive over time. And I pray that God would replace that with agape love, love for no reason at all. Now, I know that there are some of you in the room 
who you hear that and you probably go, James, ain't happening. Like, you don't know what that person's done to me. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know how that person has treated me. And maybe for some of us in the room, like your angerness and bitterness or your anger and bitterness, it's like your security blanket, right? You're holding on to that. And it's the only thing that you have to try and protect yourself from being hurt like you've been hurt. And so for you and your brain, you're going, if I let go, then I'm opening myself up to going back where I've been and I don't want to go there. Let me just say this to you. I'm not suggesting that by letting go of anger and bitterness, you put yourself back in a certain situation with a certain person. I'm not suggesting that to let go of anger and and bitterness means you go run back to, to be best friends with somebody who's hurt you. I'm not saying letting go of bitterness and anger means that you go put yourself back in harm's way with that person who maybe has abused you, abandoned you. That's not what I'm suggesting. Here's what I'm suggesting, and here's why I'm praying God would set you free today. I'm praying that for you because I don't want those attitudes to ever prevent you from truly displaying the true character of Jesus Christ to other people. Listen to me, church. It is impossible for us to truly reflect the love and grace of Jesus if anger and bitterness is rooted in our hearts toward just one person. And you know why? Because Jesus is God and God is love and love is not easily angered or resentful. And if we're going to display that as followers of Jesus, it's got to come out of us. So I'm praying that for you today. Um, Here's what we're going to do. Like we've done every other week, we're just going to learn from Jesus together. What does this kind of love look like? Agape love that isn't easily angered or resentful. And then we're going to talk about and discuss how you and I as Christ followers display that same kind of love we see in Jesus toward others. So if you still have your Bibles out, and if you don't have them out, get them back out. Turn them over to Luke chapter 7. Luke chapter 7. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can follow along up on the screen. All of our verses are going to be up there. And we're going to start reading Luke 7, verse 36. Here's what the Bible says. It says, One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him. And he went into the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner... When she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with their tears and wiped them with the hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. Now, I want to give us the full picture of what's going on in this passage, okay? The Bible says that Jesus goes to eat dinner with a guy named Simon. Simon's a Pharisee. And uh, a couple weeks ago, we talked about Pharisees. Pharisees, again, they were the religious elite of Jesus' day. They were better at church and religion and following rules and being moral and good and knowing the Bible than anybody alive during that time, okay? Uh, Another thing you need to know about the Pharisees, they didn't like Jesus very much. They didn't. I have no idea how Jesus got the dinner invite, um, but he did, but they didn't like him. And it was for a couple simple reasons. One, Jesus broke a lot of their religious rules. Um, and two, he followed them around calling them hypocrites and fakers to their faces. Right? I, I mean, if that was you, I don't know if you'd like that person either. But this is what Jesus did. And in Luke 7, we see Jesus breaking one of their religious rules right in front of them in Simon's house. And I'll explain and show you what I'm talking about. The Bible says in the middle of dinner, this woman walks through the front door of Simon's house. 
No knock, no ringing the doorbell. She hears Jesus is at this guy's house, and she is going to bust up the dinner party. Okay? So she walks in the front door, falls at the feet of Jesus. And the Bible says this woman, she's a sinful woman. And we don't know what kind of sinful woman she was, but there are Bible scholars that speculate and believe she may have been a prostitute. So here's this woman, falls at the feet of Jesus, and she just starts weeping. And the Bible says she's crying and her tears are falling onto Jesus' feet. And she starts taking her hair and wiping Jesus' feet down. She's kissing his feet. I'm not a feet person, so it's gross to me, right? Kissing Jesus' feet. And then she takes this ointment, this very expensive ointment, and she pours it out on the feet of Jesus. I mean, you get this unbelievable picture of this woman at the feet of Jesus. Just worship it. If you go back to the story, we start to see some things, some customary things that should have happened that Simon missed out on, and he missed out on them intentionally. You see, during this time when you were a guest in someone's house, um, when you showed up to eat, the first thing that would have happened when you walked in someone's front door was there would have been a servant there with a towel and a water basin to wash your feet. During this time, people traveled by walking, and, and roads were very dusty and very dirty. They wore sandals, so you know, nobody wanted a, a guest with dirty feet at their dinner table. So servant was waiting there to do that for you. Also, the host of the dinner would greet their guest at the door and give them a kiss on the face and then take a small dab of ointment and anoint their head as a blessing. What we see from the story, if you read on, is none of that happened when Jesus showed up to Simon's house. None of the customary things Simon should have done for Jesus happened. And so here's this sinful woman doing everything that Simon should have done for Jesus and more. She's not washing his feet with water and a towel. She's doing it with her hair and with her tears. I mean, she's not kissing the face of Jesus as a greeting. She's on the ground kissing his feet. She's not anointing Jesus as a blessing with some cheap perfume she bought from the dollar store, right? This ointment she used could have cost her an entire year's wages. And how does Simon, the Pharisee, the host of this dinner, respond to what's going on at his dinner table? Um, Look down at verse 39 and you'll see it. The Bible says, when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet... He would have known who and what sort of woman this is who is touching him, for she is a sinner. Simon's watching this play out, and he's going, I can't believe this. Are you kidding me? If Jesus was actually a true prophet, he would know that this woman is disgusting. She is sinful. She is undeserving of God's love and grace, and there's no way he would let that kind of woman touch him. I mean, Simon isn't celebrating that a sinful woman is on her face at the feet of Jesus, broken over her sin, wanting forgiveness. He's not celebrating. You know what he's doing? He's resenting her. He's got out her ledger sheet going, look how sinful she is. I mean, she's messed up this way. She's slept with this many guys. She's done this out on the streets. I mean, look at how messed up this woman is. And he starts to become skeptical of her, skeptical of Jesus, passing judgment on them both. And I can't help to to think that maybe he just wanted them both out of his house sooner than later. 
in, in response to this unloving, resentful, easily angered type of attitude we see displayed in Simon, Jesus decides to tell Simon a story. And he says, Simon, I, I want you to listen to this. He says, um, there's this man, and uh, two guys owe this man money. He says, one guy owes him 500 denarii. That's almost two years' worth of wages. And he goes, the other guy, he owes him about 50 denarii. That's about two months' worth of wages. He says, neither of the men can pay the guy they owe the money to. And so the guy they owe the money to eventually comes back to both these guys and says, um, hey guys, you know what? Don't worry about it. I've got your ledger sheets here. I know the debts that are unpaid, but you know what? We're going to wipe it clean. I'm ripping this up. You don't owe me anything. Wouldn't that be nice for some of us? Jesus goes, Simon, who do you think was more grateful to that man? Which of the two guys? And Simon says, probably the guy that owed him the bigger debt. And Jesus goes, Simon, you're absolutely right. And this is why this woman is here. That's why she's here. That's why she's on her face, kissing my feet and anointing me with oil. It's why she hasn't stopped weeping and wiping my feet down with her hair. It's why she's here. In verse 47, Jesus says it. He says, I tell you, her sins, which are many, are forgiven. Jesus doesn't just shrug this woman's sin off. He doesn't ignore it. He doesn't say to the Pharisees at the table, you know what, she's not that bad. Don't worry about it. Overlook it. No, Jesus goes, listen, I have her ledger sheet. I know what her life looks like. And I know she's messed up. And I know she's made a lot of mistakes. And she's lived a very sinful lifestyle. And Jesus says, but you know what? She's here seeking forgiveness. And forgiveness is exactly what she's going to receive. And at the end of verse 47 and 48, Jesus looks at this woman in the face and he declares her forgiven. Your sins are forgiven. I'm not going to hold it against you. I'm not going to be angry with you. I'm not going to resent you over this. Don't forget that Jesus is God. And he created this woman for a purpose that she ran from. I mean, she bugged the system. She ran from her God-given purpose. She challenged him with her sin, all of his glory. And here he is, God in front of her going, I'm not going to hold it against you. You want forgiveness? I'll give you forgiveness. I'm not going to be angry with you over it. I'm going to give you exactly what you want. Your sins are forgiven. Listen to me. If you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, maybe you've showed up to church and you've heard messages like this before. God loves you. Jesus loves you. He wants a relationship with you. And you're going, you know what? I can't right now. I've been too bad. You don't know me. I've made too many mistakes. I need to clean myself up so that I can kind of get back to where I need to be so that I can have a relationship with God. Listen to me. If you're here and that's you, you're refusing to come to Jesus and, and invest your life in a relationship with him and it's because you think you're too bad. Listen to me. God loves you. He loves you. 
And he doesn't want to hold your sins against you. And I don't care what your past looks like. I don't care what's defining your present. God is always ready to forgive you of your sins. And you've got to put away the lies of believing that you've got to be good enough. That there's something you need to do to make up for all the stuff back there. God loves you. He loves you. And he wants a relationship with you. And I pray today that you come to Jesus. And you find everything you need in him. I love what Jesus points out in the moment when he declares this woman's sins are forgiven. He says to the rest of the room, listen, her sins are forgiven for she loved much. He's painting this picture of this woman's natural response to her sin debt being canceled. You see, here was a woman that not only believed God or Jesus as God was able to forgive her of her sins, she believed that he was willing to in spite of all that she had ever done, in spite of the way that she had lived her life for so long, and because of her faith and belief in Jesus, she found herself at his feet weeping and worshiping and loving him much. And on the flip side of that, Jesus says, you know what, people who uh, aren't really impressed with the forgiveness and the grace of God, they don't really think there's much in their lives to be forgiven of, and this would have been descriptive of the Pharisees at this dinner, Jesus says, those people, they love little. They love God little, and they love other people little as well. Here's a question I want all of us in the room to wrestle with right now in this moment. You as an individual, forget about everybody else. You as an individual, who out of this story do you identify with the most? Like, are you that woman who when you think about the grace and forgiveness of God it overwhelms you to the point where, man, all you can do is sit in amazement and awe at Jesus? Or are you more like the Pharisees in the story who, you know what, you're pretty good, you don't think there's much to be forgiven of, and the grace and the forgiveness of God doesn't really impress you much? Like, are you more like the woman in the story who you love much when you think about the grace and forgiveness God has shown you in Jesus? Or, like the Pharisees, do you just float through life, you try to be a good person, you come to church, you give some money, you call yourself a Christian without any true love or affection for Jesus at all? Who are you? And maybe another way to pose this question is this, and let's do this. Let's think for a moment together about our sin and do that as an individual. I just want you to stop in this moment and think about your sin. Your sin. Whatever you've done up to this point in time, I want you to think about that. Church, does it not blow you away to know that we serve and worship a God who sees all of that and says, I don't want to hold any of it against you. I don't want to be angry with you over that. Instead, what I want to do is I want to provide a way for all of that, all that debt that you owe me over your sin to be canceled, to be done away with. And what I want is a loving, meaningful, eternal relationship with you. And that's going to happen through Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. Like when you hear that, um, are you the person that you're just kind of like left yawning in your seat? Oh, yeah, I've heard that. I've grown up in church all my life. Oh, I've heard that before. See, if you hear that and you're left yawning, here's what I would plead with you. Check your heart and make sure you know Jesus. Because if you hear that and you're not amazed by that, I don't know if you really know him. Because you see, when you know him and you hear that, it's overwhelming to you. 
I mean, I think about myself. Church, I don't deserve to be doing this. I don't deserve to be up here being your pastor. I know what I've done. I know the mistakes I've made. I know the sins that I've committed. And not only has God saved me through Jesus and done away with it all and removed every bit of guilt and shame from my life over everything I've ever done, but he allows me to be your pastor. It's crazy to me. And I hope and pray that when you think about Jesus, you just go, I can't get my head around that. God loves me like that. I can't get my heart, I can't comprehend that. And I pray that you are a person every time you think about grace and forgiveness you've been shown in Jesus. I pray you're that person who loves much. Love much. I want to bring this back to anger and resentment. Church, we've got to understand that as followers of Jesus, we've got an opportunity on a daily basis to share and to show that same kind of amazing, gracious love to people that we see in Christ. Even people who have hurt us, even people who have wronged us, even people who have sinned against us. You and I have an opportunity every single day to be a living example of the testimony of God's grace and forgiveness in our lives by approaching people who we might be angry with, who we might be bitter towards, and saying to them, I'm done. I'm done being angry. Like, I'm not going to keep records of your wrongs anymore. Actually, I'm going to take out your ledger sheet that I've been keeping track of stuff for so long on. I'm ripping it up. I'm throwing it in the fire. I'm done with this. I'm going to choose to love you like Jesus chose to love me. You know what? Even though it's hard and you may not deserve it, I'm just going to choose to love you for absolutely no reason at all. I'm letting go of anger. I'm letting go of bitterness. And it's love from this point forward. Church, what an amazing picture of the gospel we paint when we choose to love people by letting go of these unhealthy, sinful, eat you alive attitudes. Listen, for some of us in the room, um, maybe this plays out in the lives of you and the person sitting next to you in the chair. Like maybe your wife or your husband, you need to go home this afternoon and just have a super honest conversation with them. Maybe you need to go and say, you know what? Been angry for far too long. You know, we're gonna fight. We're gonna choose to love each other like Christ has loved us. Our marriage is going to be a picture of the gospel to the world. And so whatever that means, we fight, we go to counseling, we do whatever it takes to let go of anger and bitterness that is tearing us apart and to truly let our marriage be a display of the love of Christ. Parents, maybe you need to do this with a kid. And I don't know whose fault it is in the relationship. Maybe it's yours, maybe it's theirs, but here's what I do know. In the scriptures, you're a parent. You're supposed to lead your kid, and so that means you initiate. And so that means maybe for some of us, we need to go home and say, I'm sorry I've been throwing all your mistakes in your face for so long now. I'm sorry I've been bringing up the past. I'm done. I'm letting go of it. I'm putting resentment aside. It's not angry. I'm going to choose to love you like Christ has loved me. And you start to be a display of the love and character of Jesus to your kid. Maybe that needs to happen with a friend, with a family member. I'm just saying, listen church, as Christ followers, we have to choose to let these attitudes go. As I was studying for this message this week, I came across 
an amazing quote um, from a lady named Corrie Ten Boom. I don't know if you guys know who Corrie Ten Boom is, but she was a Dutch Christian who was alive during the Holocaust. And uh, her family was actually saving Jews. They were rescuing them and helping to save their lives from all that was going on during that time. Well, they were eventually found out. Um, family was arrested. Dad died 10 days after the arrests. And then Corey and her sister Betsy were thrown into a concentration camp and, and treated like all the other Jewish people there. Um, her sister Betsy eventually died in the concentration camp. Corey made it out alive. And after her experiences there, she went on to write a lot about how she was treated, what she went through, the conditions in which she lived, and she also wrote a lot about how to treat those people that treated her so poorly. And uh, one of the things I read about her story, again, was this quote, and here's what she had to say. She said, forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Forgiveness is an act of the will, and the will can function regardless of the temperature of the heart. Maybe you're still sitting here and you're going, James, I don't know. I don't feel it. Like, all this stuff sounds good, and I see it in Jesus, and I hear you saying we're supposed to display his love and character and all that stuff, but James, I'm just not feeling it. You don't know what I've been through. You don't know how I've been treated. I'm not feeling it. And here's what I would say to you again. And Corey Timboom points this out so beautifully. Agape love is not about feelings. It's about making a choice. And it's about choosing in spite of how you feel to love someone like Christ has loved you. It's a choice, church. And listen to me, as followers of Jesus, we have to choose to love people in a way that is not easily angered or resentful. Here's how we're going to close this morning. We're going to take communion together as a church. And we're just going to reflect on the amazing truth that we are loved by God. As the bread and the juice symbolize, you know, Jesus' body was broken for us, his blood was shed for us all so that your sin debt and mine to God could be canceled. So that he never had to hold that stuff against us. A couple things before we do this. One, again, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, um, this is for believers. But you know what? I'm going to give you a chance in just a moment to place your faith in Jesus for the very first time if you've never done that before. Um, if you're here and you know Jesus, and there's somebody in your life or some people in your life that you just struggle with when it comes to anger, resentment, bitterness. I want you to pray right now that God through his Holy Spirit would just invade you and push those attitudes out of your heart and your life. Free you today. Make a choice. So I just want to ask you if you would, um, let's bow our heads together. Again, if you're here, you don't know Jesus. The Bible says it's about belief and repentance. That you need to be willing to believe and confess some things about Jesus. You need to be willing to believe that Jesus is God. That he died in your place for your sins. That he rose from the grave so that you could have eternal life. The Bible says, man, if you'll turn from your sin... Find forgiveness of your sin, past, present, and future sins in Jesus. 
that God will save you. So right now in your seats, I just want to give you an opportunity just to believe and confess those things. Yes, I believe Jesus is God. Yes, I believe he died in my place for my sins so that I could have a relationship with God. Yes, I believe Jesus rose from the dead three days later to bring me eternal life. Ask God to forgive you. Ask God to make you a new creation. Commit your life today to honor him, to follow him, to live the life that he created you for. Again, the Bible says you believe, confess those things. God saves you. He welcomes you into his family. For the rest of us, before we take communion, the Bible says we need to examine our hearts. Communion is not something we take lightly. It's not something we do flippantly. We want to always take this in a worthy manner to honor Jesus. So I just want you to take a moment, confess sins in your life to God. Again, if there are relationships in your life that are broken, pray and ask God to mend those to help you to let go of anger and bitterness you might feel for certain people. Father, in this moment, we just want to thank you for Jesus. We want to thank you, God, for providing a way for us to be forgiven and to know life. Father, as we take communion this morning, we pray that you are honored, that you are glorified, that Jesus is made much of. God, push anger and bitterness out of our lives, God, if we're holding on. Free people today. God, we believe that you are able. We believe that you are willing. So we ask those things in the name of your son, Jesus. Amen.